Welcome to the Goddesses of Social Work podcast, hosted by Renita Ray Davis, licensed clinical social worker, board-approved social work clinical supervisor, and facilitator of the Goddesses of Social Work supervision community. Join us as we travel through the social work journeys told by the Goddesses of Social Work community members, past and present, as they make their way toward clinical licensure. Welcome to the Goddesses of Social Work podcast. In today's episode, Malikia Francois, LMSW, has graced us with her presence. Malikia Francois is a licensed master social worker who obtained her master's degree from the University of Southern California in 2018 through their Advanced Standing Program. Malikia's specialization was in children, youth, and families and military social work. She currently resides in Alabama, where she is employed with the Department of Army as a certified employee assistant professional for the Army Substance Abuse Program. As a certified employee assistant professional, Malikia engages with DOD civilians, retirees, veterans, and active duty spouses to provide short-term solution-focused counseling to address personal and or professional stressors that may be affecting their daily functioning. Malikia was awarded the prestigious honor of Ready and Resilient Guardian for the first quarter fiscal year 24 in 2023 for significant contribution to the overall mission of the Aviation Center of Excellence. Malikia also serves as a mediator with the Alternative Dispute Resolution Program for the United States Department of the Army. Malikia enjoys being able to support the military community and her role as a military spouse just makes it so much more meaningful. Malikia's journey into social work profession began in 2012 at the University of West Florida. It is there where Malikia's love for the profession blossomed through participation in programs like Alternative Spring Break, Big Brother, Big Sister Mentorships, Human Trafficking Task Force, and Habitat for Humanity. With just eight years in the profession, Malikia is excited to see what her next chapters in social work will bring. Welcome, Maliki. I'm super excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much, Renita. I'm so excited to be a part of um, the podcast and this journey. Thank you so much for having me. You're absolutely welcome. I can't wait to have you on. Maliki, I'm reading your bio. The word excellence comes to mind. I guess my first question is, where do you find the time to accomplish all of these things? And where does your drive for excellence come from? I think it was just, it's always been there. Um, again, you know, I'm the oldest of, hmm, I can't even keep count now. Um, and so I have at least five siblings. On, oh, I have five siblings on my mom's side and I have six on my dad. So I think it's just always been there because, you know, I'm that older sister. So I just feel like I have to show them that things are achievable. Um, so I think that's just where it's like, I always feel like I have to keep moving the bar so that, you know, not only my siblings, but, you know, I have a three-year-old daughter um, so that she knows that, you know, you can achieve anything. Like no one could technically put you in a box. And I think that's one of my fears is just being placed in the box. So, yeah, I just, I feel like if I see something, I want it, I'm going to go for it. And nine times out of 10, I, I achieve it and I achieve it exceeding what was expected of me. You sound like... Beyonce, the divine feminine. <laughs> I love it. Are you seeing the fruits of your labor? Are you seeing the ones coming behind you accomplishing great things as well? 
Yes, um, I do. You know, like two of my siblings, you know, my younger sisters, they are in college right now. Um, so just being able to even nurture them on that journey, right? Because I'm first generation. Um, so even being able to, um, you know, talk to them about that journey and be able to see them excel, you know, it's just beautiful to me because when I did it, I didn't have anybody, you know, I just jumped out there and I floundered and, but it, it all worked itself out. So to be able to see them now realize that something that our parents didn't achieve is something they can achieve. It's just beautiful. And it's just a full circle moment for me and I enjoy it. I absolutely love that you mentioned being a first generation, right? How, you know, sometimes when you've not seen someone before you do that thing, how did you know that education, one, first getting your undergraduate and then going and getting your master's? Because sometimes we think just let's, you know, I got my college degree, why am I keep going? And especially our parents. I know my mother was like, because I'm I'm the oldest as well. When I got my undergraduate, she was like, why are you going to get your master's? You know, and I'm so glad that I did. How did you know the importance of education? How was that instilled in you? I think for me, it was because it was always something that was mine. Um, and it allowed for me to shine without having to do too much for attention. You know, being the oldest, you kind of get, you know, overlooked. Um, and so I think for me, just my education was just mine and no one could take that from me. Like what was in my mind was in my mind. And so for me, it was just like, uh, no one's went to college. I'm going to go to college. Right. And then I think originally, you know, people were like, well, just go to community college first. And I just knew like that wasn't for me. Like I just knew if I went to community college, still in the same environment with the same people that I might not finish, um, because worldly things might get a hold of me. So I think because that was even a big decision for me. I moved eight hours away from my family to go to Pensacola. Never even knew that school existed. Um, but it was just something that told me you need to get away. You need to get away. You need to create your own identity. And I did. And I'm so grateful I did because yeah, there's nothing like having to thrive on your own and having to figure out how to make things work, um, how to pay your own bills, how to feed yourself um, when there's not really much to fall back on, you know, in a sense. So I think that was what it was for me. Awesome. I love that. I forgot that you graduated, even though I just read your bio <laughs> from UWF. I literally have just connected with some of the most amazing professors from UWF that I hope will be on the show in the next year or so and um, talk, you know getting into that next question which is telling us about your social work journey how did you get here I would also love for you to incorporate you know what were your relationships like with the UWF professors yeah so surprisingly enough you know I didn't even, I didn't really know I wanted to be a social worker. Like, I think initially I went to school, I wanted to be a lawyer. Like, it was just something about it. You know, I wanted to be um, a change agent. I wanted to change policies. I wanted to, you know, uh, in growing up, people always say, oh, you're good at arguing. You're going to argue your point and you're going to win. You know, I was in debate club. So it was something that I just felt like I should do. And I started out that way. And then, you know, someone mentioned like, you know, maybe I should look into social work. And I was like, well, you know, they don't make no money. 
Um, I don't think my dad would be okay with me going to college and not getting a degree that can, you know, support me. So in my mind, I was just like, uh, that's not an option for me. But I still went over to the social work department and I read, I met, you know, an advisor, Miss Erica Mack. And it was just something about her, just the way in which she spoke about the profession was just so highly, you know, even when I made that statement about, you know, hey, we might not make no money. And she was just like, well, is money everything? Like, if you don't make any money, are you going to be happy? Like, do you want to be happy in what you do in life? And I was just like, yeah, you know, that's true. Like, I do want to go to work and I do want to be happy in my career. And so that was just like it for me. And then she actually became my my um advisor throughout the program. And so it was just nice because anytime I met with her, and again, that was another, you know, she's an African-American woman that, you know, to see her talk about just what she could do with her degree and just how, you know, how important we are was just beautiful to me. So that alone was just like, okay, like, you know, I could always go and be a lawyer, but, you know, how many social workers do I know? How many people? And I didn't know any. So I think that was that driving force to me of just like, okay, I, I, I want to prove people wrong. And so in my mind, I was like, I'm going to prove people that I can make money being a social worker and that I can have a lucrative life and that, you know, we are, you know, not just these people out here snatching kids. So that I think that was what it is for me. I I, I feel like, I guess that's what pushes me to have to prove things. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I love that. Before you keep telling us more about your social work journey, I'm just so curious, like you said you didn't know any social workers, but you had this mindset of social workers don't make any money. So I'm just curious, where did that that stereotype come from for you? Right. So I think for me, it was because like I didn't know any social workers personally, but, you know, I had met child welfare workers who had, you know, somehow got in came around right and so you know just even in that passing it was just that conversation of like you know they don't really like their jobs they're just taking kids and they don't really make money so um and I think that was more so probably even in talking to some of my friends in undergrad when I was talking to them about shifting you know to social work I think that was even the narrative amongst the amongst them was just like well why would you switch like you can be a lawyer like why would you switch to that so I think that's kind of where it was it's just you know you hear that chat you hear that talk and then it just sits with you kind of and again you know I didn't want to be you know getting into debt to then not be able to support myself once I get it I love it and I like that you differentiated child welfare workers from social workers <laughs> do you mind speaking on what you know the difference is just so we can break that narrative up a little bit Yes. Yeah, so I actually, that was my first job um, after graduating with my undergraduate. Um, I went and I worked for child welfare for what, I think two and a half years. And so before working there, I thought everyone was a social worker. I thought every, everyone that worked in child welfare was a social worker until I got in the profession. And then I realized there were people with criminal justice degrees. There was people with like art degrees. They just anybody who technically had a degree and could pass the actual child welfare um, exam, uh, I guess, in Florida. Um, then you could technically be a, 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 CPI, a CPI, which is a child protective investigator. So once I realized that, then I was like, oh, that's the difference. I do want to make sure that, you know, I often say, I say this, I've been saying this for years. I've never worked for DHR or DFACS, 
But those folks, whether you have a social work degree, whether you have a criminal justice degree, whether you have an arts degree, which I think is funny, I think, you know, when you do that job and you do it well, because some folks are really passionate about it, my hat always is tipped to those folks because that is a special kind of work that um, is being done there. And so I just want to make sure we give them their flowers. But I also want to make sure we differentiate CPI from social work and that not all social workers work at DHR or not all folks who work at DHR defects are social workers and there is a, a difference and it is with the license and with our degree right so I heard you say your first job was I'm going to assume was defects because I think Florida calls it defects right uh the department of children and families <laughs> oh okay okay and that you were there for two and a half years that's even when you have a whole undergrad degree in social work, I'm assuming, right? And you didn't even realize until you got there that there was a difference. And so then you're like, okay, this isn't all I can do. There's so much more I can do. After you know two and a half years, tell us more about your social work journey. Yeah. So after that, I think it was like in my, I think, yeah, 2017, um, you know, my husband decided he wanted to do a career shift. Um, and that he was going to join the military. So then at that moment, I was just like, well, you know, knowing a little bit about military uh, culture, because I grew up in it um, through my dad. So for me, I was just like, well, there's going to be a time where I'm not really doing anything because we have to move and I'll have to get, get roots. So then I was just like, well, maybe I could go back to school. Like I like school um, and I definitely could get my master's. And so then that just became another challenge for me. And so once I looked at programs, I was just like, okay, there's an advanced standing program. I could get my degree in a year. Like I want that. I'd rather have it a year because if something happens and we have to move again. Um, and then more importantly, because I needed an online program. So um, that's how I stumbled upon USC. And they had an advanced standing program. And I told myself, okay, I'm going to try and see if I can get in, right? And then once I got in, then I guess I didn't have any choice but to go. And so then that's how I ended up, you know, now having my master's. And we ended up moving to Texas. And then I ended up doing my uh, practicum and stuff there. And then I just, again, fell in love with just the versatility of what, I can do and the fact that I didn't have limits and I think that's again that drive um and that passion that keeps me here in social work and again when I talk about it why I'm always just so happy and just so you know thankful to have found this career and to have someone to you know kind of steer me in this direction um because I just don't know how I would be if I was in another career. Malika I did forget but just remembered one, you are you are also multi-state licensed, right? You have your license. I think you tell us where you have your your social work licenses at. Yes, I'm licensed in Texas, New Mexico, and then Alabama. That's right. That's right. And you know, one thing, my favorite things is talking about multi-state licensure. But I want to talk about multi-state licensure through the lens of a military spouse. You're the only military spouse that we found the show thus far, and. I do think there that's an opportunity for folk, right? Who are maybe following their spouses, you know, wherever they're being stationed um, and being able to get a degree in social work and then being able to be licensed in multiple states. Do you mind sharing how that works for you being a military spouse and what are the benefits? Because I know there are some um, in 
working with the boards as a military spouse? Yes. So honestly, um, I would say it's a pretty easy process, I think. Um, and it is because I think maybe the benefits that you're referring to is that we kind of do get reciprocity in a lot of states. Um, we just got to just um, like because even coming to Alabama, all I had to do was just show my husband's military orders. Um, and then they even waived certain fees that I didn't have to pay because I was, again, moving um, for my spouse. And that was the relocation for that. And that's the same thing I did in New Mexico. So I originally tested um, and did everything in Texas. And then because we were so close to New Mexico, I was like, why not try and see if they'll give me the license on reciprocity? And I applied and they did. And I was like, okay, that worked. Um, and so that's how I got licensed in New Mexico. And which was important because where I'm located, well, where we were located in El Paso, we literally was less than 30 minutes from New Mexico. So sometimes it just made it easier if I wanted to go work over there it wasn't as hard for me to be able to go and find a job just in case I wanted, you know, if we did have to move. Um, but that's one of the things I really do love is that, again, you know, that's that new initiative that I feel like the military is also pushing is recognizing that, you know, spouses and our careers are important um, and doing things to ensure that we can still have some type of sense of control in a situation where there's really not much for either party, you know, whether my spouse or myself. Um, but even that little piece, just knowing that, hey, my degree is versatile, my license is where I can literally go in another state and they will give me reciprocity where I can start working, you know, within maybe three or four months versus having to test and all that again when we don't have to. I love that. That was such great information. And hopefully those who may have a degree in psychology or criminal justice or one of those other helping professions will be encouraged and are inspired to go and get that master's in social work, knowing that they can travel throughout the United States and beyond with that, with the support of the United States military. So that is really, really great. Malikia, you know, what, what are your plans? And, and do it through the lens too, of uh, being multi-state licensed. One of the things that, um, I like to do is encourage LMSWs to get licensed in multiple states. When you're already connected to the board, you already know what the processes are. And so when you get to that clinical licensure, my hope is then it's a bit easier for you to, you know, move on to LCSW in that state that you're already licensed in as an LMSW. So, you know, what are your plans for social work? And if you could incorporate the lens of being licensed in multiple states. Yeah, so I think my overall goal is to eventually um, navigate into just being in private practice. Um, I think just being able to either provide um, therapy to either the military community um, or, you know, working just with um, disadvantaged youth is something that is also a strong heart pull for me. Um, and just being able to be licensed in multiple states allow for me to treat people on different levels. Um, and that's what's important to me. Like, I don't ever just want to be able only to help someone or, you know, um, engage with someone just in my city when I know there are people, and there's a shortage right now, right, of therapists and clinicians that, I want to be able to, hey, if there's someone in another state that I'm licensing and they, me and them mesh and we we hit it off and we have good rapport, I want to be able to provide them that support um, because I know it's hard to find someone where you mesh well and you're able to get 
you know, healed. You're able to, you know, walk that journey that you need to make sure that you can go and just live a great life, you know, because I'm thankful for that. You know, at some point I met, you know, someone and went to therapy with someone that helped me to heal from some things that, you know, I didn't know were going to manifest into my life and cause issues, right? So that's just my biggest thing is that I just want to make sure that I'm that warrior or that change agent for someone else. So good. So good. You know, I am licensed in multiple states and I was intentional about which states I got licensed in. Obviously, I love Louisiana, so (laughs) that was a no-brainer. But the other states like Colorado, Arizona, Idaho, I looked on psychology today and there was no one, there was not that many that Mm -hmm. looked like me, right? And I know that there are people who look like me in those states. And, you know, there's a different container that can be held for folks who um, can do this work, who look like you. And so that that's kind of what I'm hearing you say. It's like, I want to make sure that I'm the bonfire and that people who resonate with the energy that you hold are able to find you because you did, did the work. Not just the work professionally, but I love that you did the work personally. I often say that... <laughs> Social work sometimes is like church. That's where all the sick folks come, (laughs) you know, but what is important is we can only take our client as far as we're willing to go. And if you're not willing to go to be on the other side of the table and be a therapist who has a therapist, you know, how are you able to really take that client as far as you can go um, because you're not doing the work? What inspired you, Malikia, to to be a therapist who has a therapist. I love that you are. Um, I think it's just, again, life, right? You know, like as you mentioned, you know, or even as I've mentioned, you know, I have myself and then I have the identity that's looped in as a spouse and then the military identity looped into that. And then now I'm a mother. And I think as I go through these different transitions, right? I wasn't, I don't think I was actually prepared to go through them, right? Um, and then just learning to try to unlearn some unhealthy things that I learned um, to ensure that, you know, hey, when I am showing up in these different environments, that I'm my most authentic, but also my most healthy itself, right? Um, because my biggest thing, especially I think more so even now that I have my daughter, I think that's also my driving force of saying I need to make sure I stay in therapy, right? Um, because I think that's just been one of my biggest things is I don't want to have any generational curses falling on her. I don't want her to ever grow up and look back and just be like, you know, some things from my childhood shouldn't have happened and they happen and I not be able to be in a place to accept it and be able to give her an apology and authentically mean it. Right. And so I think that's for me is why I'm like, therapy is important. I tell my clients every time, like therapy is needed. Like I am learning. Um, I, I don't, and I am going to continuously learn and I'm going to make mistakes that I think going and working with someone that's going to hold me accountable and say, girl, that was you, <laughs> you know, that was definitely you because Malikia has a fire. And so, you know, having someone that can rein that in and tell me, no girl, that was you. Um, you, you need to check yourself. You need to go apologize. You need to go do some self-awareness and come back. I think is important and it's needed. And I got away from it. And then I think I came to a, cl- a clinical supervision and you, um, said, hey, hold up, you trying to be Captain Sable, 
And that was what reminded me, okay, I have slipped, right? And so that was that spark to tell me to go ahead and get back on over there um, because there's something that's coming back up that I didn't realize I came back up. And through doing that, you know, I am so much better now. I am so much healthier now. Um, and it, again, it makes me a better wife. It makes me a better mother. It makes me a better clinician, right? It makes me a better friend. It makes me a better sister um, and daughter overall. And so for me, I think that's why it's important to make sure I stay in therapy and I keep myself whole. Oh, that was so good, Malikia. I'm I'm going to stick with this just a little bit longer. Okay. I don't want to, I, I feel like we're going to have to come back and have a part two. But one of the things too, not just within the social work community or the therapeutic community, therapists having therapists, right? You know, I think I'm, I am the social worker, social worker. <laughs> um, but also within the African-American community, right? And the stigma of, you know, you need the Bible versus, you know, going to see a therapist. How did you push past all of that in order for you to be like, this does work. And then being that person who can say, it works because I, I do it, so I know it works. How did you push back all of those obstacles? Um, bluntly, it's because half of the people in my family, half of the African-Americans in our community go to church, you know? And they are out here bleeding on people. They are out here scarring people. They are out here hurting people um, because they haven't healed a little person inside. So for me, that wasn't enough. You know, I went to God. I prayed, you know, not and I have faith and I know that, you know, he can do all things. Right. But at the same time, for me, it's like God gave me a mind for a reason. God gave me the calling to be a therapist for a reason. So how can I be out here telling my clients, oh yeah, you need to show up for yourself. You need to make sure you go and do the work. You need to heal yourself. And then I'm out here avoiding or saying, oh, well, I'm giving it to God, right? I can give it to God, but I can also go give it to my therapist who went to school, who got a degree, who is aware of some accountability and can use some tools and some modeling to help me get me in check. Because I had tried it. I, I I can be honest. I had tried it. And for a while, it led to me being angry because I would just be like, well, I'm praying for God to fix me. I'm praying for God to allow me to let those things go and to not feel that way about certain people. And it wasn't going anywhere. That anger was still there. That frustration, that hostility was still there. And it wasn't until I saw the therapist who taught me reframing, who taught me boundaries. Like, it's okay to decide that you're not going to deal with these people anymore. You're not going to deal with toxic family members or toxic friends. Until I went to someone who actually gave me the space to feel okay and saying, I don't want to deal with that person because when I deal with them, they hurt me. Um, I wasn't okay. I wasn't who I am now. And so, yeah, I feel like you can have both. I go to church. I read my Bible. I believe in God. I love God. Um, and he is the center of my life. But at the same time, I'm going to go and I'm going to go see my therapist faithfully. <laughs> like like Sunday morning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like Sunday morning. Oh, Malikia, I have in mind, you know, social work and spirituality. You know, we've done several presentations on that. And I think that I can't wait to continue these kinds of conversations with you and a few other folks who have, who are wanting to have dialogue about, you know, 
social work and our spirituality and how we can have both. And um, so I appreciate your transparency. I'm going to move on to our next question, though. And I heard you speak of your social work advisor, and she could be that person. But, you know, who were your favorite social work mentors and our instructors? Um, I would only ha honestly have to say one that resonates with me so well would be um, my field instructor um, from when I moved to or El Paso, uh, Myra Garcia. Like, it was just something about her. She's this spicy funky Latina, but I just love the fact that she stood her ground, you know, like I went and I worked, or oh, I interned at the El Paso Child Guidance Center. And like, when I went there, I'm so thankful that she was, you know, my social work supervisor, because like, she taught me the ability to have a voice, the ability that it's okay to go against the grain, like you can work somewhere and also try to be a change agent within that job. And then she also taught me that it's okay after a while that you realize that you shouldn't have to be um, the, the know-it-all person for your race in a job. And so that to me has definitely driven me to be like, uh -uh, I don't need to be the subject matter experts for all Black people because I don't speak for all Black people. I, I'm not the same as such and such down the street. We don't have the same story or the same, you know, lifestyle. So that one piece right there, I think it's what I love the most about her because she didn't mind saying, no, I'm not speaking for all Latinos. Like if you have a question about Latinos, go do the research, you know, go get your cultural competency. That's your job. You know, you are in this profession for a reason. She held people accountable and, and she did it in a manner that it wasn't even rude. Like, you know, it wasn't even, it, it, it wasn't even, it was coming from a pace of love, but I could tell like for her, that was a strong boundary of, no, I'm not gatekeeping. You're not going to come to me with these questions. I'm not going to only engage with Latinos. If you, if you're going to be a part of this um, entity then, or this agency, you need to learn how to engage with them. You need to learn the language. You need to learn the culture. And I loved her for that. You know what I heard? Oh, I love it too. You got to say her name again so we can thank her publicly. What's her name? Myra Garcia. Thank you, Miss Garcia. Thank you for that. But I, what I was hearing is I'm not your only Black friend. I'm not going to be that person. I'm not going to be that person. And I'm, you know, and for her to instill that in you and then for you to also have this military background that you're, you one, were raised up in and then now married into diversity just oozes out of you. Diversity just oozes out of you. So thank you, Ms. Garcia. We are so glad. Thank you, you so much. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, Malikia, knowing what you know now, eight years later, almost a decade in, right? What are some things, you know, you're in your social work room, we're about to go on a journey, we're about mm -hmm. to pack our suitcases. What's something that you would take, give me one or two things that you would take with you on your social work journey. Um, and you're packing light, Erica Badu. Pack okay. Light. <laughs> um, number one, I would say authenticity. It's the most important thing I have. I think it's what makes people gravitate to me because I'm my authentic self at all points. You will get my leakier here that you get my leakier there. Um, you don't have to worry about me switching up on you. So I think that is one thing I'll take with me. And then the other, I think is just, you know, Knowing what I knowing what you know and being the subject matter and what you know. Don't go out here trying to BS or, you know, if you don't know, then get in the books 
or get some training. Um, that's what I think is important because I see that all the time when engaging with different social workers it'll just be like, I'm quick to say, oh, you just taught me something new. Um, or, oh, can you send me the link where I can go learn that? And I think that's the one thing I feel like, you know, it's another thing to take as a social worker is never feel like you are too big to learn something because this career is always changing it's always molding so just keeping yourself available to be you know molded is just I think important to make you know you go long and far in this career so much wisdom today I love that you know the CSWE competency number one is we are lifelong learners right once you get your license you have to get those CEUs and if you're licensed in multiple states you yes. have to get multiple CEUs right and so to not just do that because of your, you know, to keep your license, but just to do it because you want to be the best social worker possible. Um, but I do think, and what the energy I was getting from you is that sometimes because our clients come to us and they do feel like we are the authority on whatever that is. One, the client is the expert in their own life. So making sure we always remember that, but we kind of do get into that energy of, I know, I have, I know this and I'm, coming into this space, knowing this and being okay with, wait, competency number one is we're always lifelong learners. There's a reason we have to get these multiple CEUs throughout our licensing career, but being okay, I love that you said that with, especially <laughs> your beautiful Sagittarius energy. I don't know everything <laughs> and you know what, but I want to find out that part, right? Not just that I don't know it, but I want to find out because I want to be the best social worker I can be for you and for myself. Right. What is something that you would leave behind? I heard early on in our conversation that social workers don't make any money. You were out to prove that wrong. You can right. bring that into the conversation and or something else as well. Yes. So that would be the first one. Yes, that one is definitely a lie. Um, and I'm tired of that one. Um, because again, you know, even as an LMSW, like I've had so many different positions that have paid me well. Right. And then, you know, I'm seeking my LCSW because again, I do want the other piece of the pie that comes with that. Right. And I think for me, it's not even, I don't even think it's more so the money. I think it's more so the autonomy because for me, I don't like being put in the box. And if I want to go on a cruise or go to an island, I want to be able to do that without having to tell someone I need time off. Um, Cause that's one thing I do like, hate is having to use PTO. Um, but then number two, I would say that self-doubt, you know, I think, you know, and I think that also plays into that imposter syndrome that we kind of have sometimes. Um, and so just learning to leave that where it's at, because we know what we know. Um, and, it's just, it's beautiful to know what you know. And I think being able to know that, hey, this is my specialty. This is my area, right? So that self-doubt of saying, oh, I'm only, you know, I have to work with all populations. You don't. If you feel comfortable working with kids, work with kids and be the best child therapist that you can be. If you're good working in hospice and working with the elderly, do that and work great in that, right? And don't have that self-doubt of feeling like, oh, well, I have to be versatile. I have to be able to work in all of, you know, the populations. No, 
stick to what you know if that's what you're good at because that's where you're going to make the most change at that's where you're going to be your most authentic and that's where you're going to actually see change where your clients are enjoying to see you and you're enjoying to see them and I feel like that'll make it where you have less burnout because you're not pretending you're not showing up wanting to be somewhere that you know hey this don't mesh well with me I don't fit well here you know Mm -hmm. Yes, I do know. I want to expand on autonomy. I am in private practice, but I think I would like to, you know, I hear you guys, some of you, not everybody in clinical, you know, going, getting your clinical licenses and, and saying that the goal is to be in private practice. And I often want to just say, what kind of private practice? Because it's not necessarily you know, therapy. I, yeah, I have I have a few therapy clients, but my private practice is not based on their, you know, having okay. therapeutic clients. It's on something else. And so maybe even changing the narrative of what private practice looks like. We talked about autonomy and it not necessarily being about the money. I'm working now, but I decided Sunday morning I want to go to New Orleans. <laughs> so, you know, being able to just wake up and go where you want to go, even though and be able to work where you want to work from. Um, is not necessarily, you know, when you think about private practice, when you think about making money, I love that you talked about autonomy and how can we expand even that narrative of what that might look like. It's not a brick and mortar building, you right. know, with your shingle hanging up. I know that was like always the ultimate goal when I get my shingle. <laughs> I don't want to be in nobody's building, you know, because then that means I have to be there. And so expanding even that narrative. And so the word autonomy, I love that you use that so much. And moving into our last question, like I've so enjoyed this conversation with you and I hope you'll come back again, maybe during social work month. Um, I would love to expand some of these topics that you brought up today, but you're such an inspiration. If you could inspire social workers out there that are listening, what would what would you say to those social workers to inspire them? I would say, go for it. Go for it. Whatever it is that you want, go for it. Don't, don't allow people, places, or things to tether you to things that you don't want to be tethered to. Um, I think that's, that's, I think that's just been my biggest driving force is that if I see something or if I want something, I'm going to go for it. You know, like I can be content, but at the same time, I, and I think that is my Sagittarius energy, that I'm always seeking adventure. I'm always seeking the next, I guess, for me, thrill. Um, and I guess for me, that looks like accomplishments, right? Um, because I guess, I, I don't know, I think for me, that's that little girl in me that is just like, yeah, if I accomplish, if I make it to the top and there's nothing else at the top, then you can't tell me nothing. Like, you can't tell me nothing. And so I think that's that biggest thing. I just say, go for it. You know, go head first into your career. Um, go head first into your passions and continue to always seek what makes you happy. Don't get into a job or a position and stay there just because you feel like you have to. Um, no, like go for whatever you want. If you want to be a travel social worker, go for it. You want to be a medical social worker, go for it. You want your own private practice, go for it. Definitely make a blueprint, um, but go for it, right? Because there's nothing, uh, there's honestly nothing to lose, really. There's really nothing to lose because, yeah, I think these goals and things that we have in our head, they only exist there, right? So definitely just go for whatever it is that you want in life. I love that. You know what I'm into? 
the last couple of months, I saw someone recently post about an ego wall. And oh. so, you know, we do a lot of vision board stuff. We got a vision, you know, board party coming up in January. And next to that, I want us to put our ego boards up, meaning what are the things that you've accomplished so that you can know that the vision that you're setting, if you could accomplish that, you definitely can accomplish this. And so I love that you're lighting up your accomplishments. There's so many. <laughs> I love it because I've known you for a couple of years now and I didn't even know you had accomplished all of this. And so I love that you were, you know, bold enough and big enough to light up your accomplishments with us today and to inspire others to be like, you know what? I did that. And now I'm going to go for it. So Malikia, I hope you have the happiest of birthdays. Thank you. I do. Happy Sagittarius season. Thank you so <laughs> and much. And I will have you back on for part two. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Goddesses of Social Work podcast. We are glad you were here. If you liked this episode, please come back to hear more stories of the journeys through social work and please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. See you next time here on the Goddesses of Social Work podcast.